Welcome to the Beacon Broadcast from Beacon Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina, featuring expositional Bible teaching by Pastor Greg Barkman. If you'd like to correspond with the Beacon Broadcast, or if you wish to support this radio ministry, write to The Beacon Broadcast, Post Office Box 159, Alamance, North Carolina, 27201, or find us on the web at beaconbaptist.com beaconbaptist.com The Beacon Broadcast is supported in part by the gifts of faithful listeners. Now with today's message from God's Word, here is Greg Barkman. We return today to John chapter 15 and the parable, I guess you would call it, the teaching that is based upon the analogy of the vine and how the vine, a very common element in Jewish society, which was filled, the whole country was filled with grape vines and how that common illustration, that common object, that common object became an object lesson for the disciples of Christ and for anyone who is interested in knowing a right relationship with God and truth about having a right relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. This is, you may recall, and this is by way of of review, this is the last of the seven I am's of the Gospel of John. Seven wonderful statements where Jesus said, I am the bread of life, I am the light of the world, I am the door, I am the good shepherd, I am the resurrection and the life, I am the way, the truth and the life, I am the vine. And we've come to that one now, where Jesus says in John 15, 1, I am the vine, and my father father is the vine dresser. Now, in this section, we are going to find several things. First of all, we're going to find a claim of Christ to his deity. Because the one who gives and sustains spiritual life is God, but here it is clearly Christ. But of course, that's no contradiction when you understand that Jesus Christ is God. Failing to understand that, you may have difficulty explaining how a Christ, a a Jesus Christ, who is something less than God, can be all of the things that is described in this in this section. So it is a clear claim to the deity of Jesus Christ. And furthermore, it is clear instructions to the disciples of Christ as to how they can become fruitful, what re, what produces fruit in the lives of believers and what they can do to bear fruit and to increase the fruit which they bear. But in this section there's also a warning to the careless because Here we are clearly told that failure to bear spiritual fruit is a serious matter. It's a more serious problem than most professing Christians realize. And so with those things in mind, we're going to take a careful look at this chapter, or this this section of the chapter, on this Sunday, 
November 27. Thank you for joining our broadcast today, and thank you for helping us with the financial costs. Well, again, verses 1 and 2, as we look at the analogy of the vine. I am the true vine, and my Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit he takes away, and every branch that bears fruit he prunes that it may bear more fruit. What are the basic elements in this analogy? We have Jesus, who is the vine. We have the Father, God the Father, who is the vine dresser. We have the followers of Jesus Christ, who are the branches of this vine. And we have God actively involved with all the branches. On the one hand, removing fruitless branches, and on the other hand, pruning fruitful branches. That's the basic elements that are found in this analogy. But let's take a look at expanded instructions that are found throughout. And there are five significant declarations, and what are they? Well, number one, that believers are created by the power of Christ's word. Let's look at it. Verse 3, you are already clean because of the word which I have spoken to you. What is that referring to? Well, clearly to their conversion, to their salvation. It takes us back to chapter 13, the upper room discourse where Christ is washing the disciples' feet. And that's all part of this same section, all spoken within, we don't know the exact time frame, but I would say within no more than an hour or two of the other statements, what was spoken in chapter 15 probably doesn't come probably doesn't come an hour after what took place in chapter 13. And what do we find there? Well, we find the same idea in chapter 13 in regard to the foot washing illustration, or the foot washing analogy, we might say. There, Christ used his act of washing the disciples' feet, which was a common act that all of them were familiar with. It was commonly carried out on social occasions throughout the nation of Israel. And he used that act to teach important spiritual truth, even as he is now using the analogy of the vine to teach similar important spiritual truths. And what did Jesus say in John 13.10? He said to them, He who is bathed needs only to wash his feet, but is completely clean, and you are clean, but not all of you. For he knew who would betray him, therefore he said, you are not all clean. Now, that, when we understand exactly what Jesus is saying, is reference to conversion. And Christ is saying that you are cleansed, except for Judas, who was not, because he was not a true believer. He was not born again. He was not regenerate. You are cleansed, but you need this daily foot washing. You need to confess your sins on a regular basis. I remember a number of years ago, and it has been quite a few years ago now, a man who was attending our church at that time and driving quite a distance to do so. He and his wife are no longer able to do so simply because they have become too aged to comfortably do that. But he said to me one day, if we are completely justified when we are born again, 
that all of our sins, past, present, and future, have been cleansed. They have been washed away. They are, there's no record of them. All of the sins have been forgiven. We have been justified. He wasn't using this theological language, the word justified, but you understand what his question was. If it's true that all of our sins are dealt with when we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, not only past sins and present sins, but future sins, ones we haven't even committed yet, then why do we need to confess our sins daily and ask God's forgiveness from day to day? It's a legitimate question. And the answer is given to us in this passage in John chapter 13. You are all clean, but you need to be daily washed. You are all justified, but you need the daily forgiveness that has to do with your relationship with the Father in, a, in, in the relationship of fellowship. Justification has to do with our relationship with God as judge. As judge, then everyone relates to God as either a guilty sinner who will be pronounced guilty at the day of judgment and banished from God forever, or if, having been justified in Christ Jesus, then that one will be declared righteous and received into the presence of God. That's justification, and that's how we relate to God as our judge. Everybody must relate to God as judge, and there are only two possibilities. Either you relate to him as an unjustified, unforgiven, guilty sinner who has not been cleansed of your sins, or you relate to him as a born-again, justified, forgiven sinner whose sins have been completely dealt with at the cross of Christ. That's relating to God as judge. But after we are saved, we now, for the first time, truly, relate to God as our Father. That's a different kind of relationship. That is a family relationship, or a technical term that we sometimes use is a filial relationship. This is the relationship where we, where we enjoy communion. We talk to our Father. We, we have a different relationship with God, entirely different than what we had before we were saved. We have a God-given desire to be in fellowship with the Father, a God-given desire to pray, a God-given desire to take in the Word of God, the Word of our Heavenly Father to read it for ourselves, to hear it expounded when we gather together in corporate worship. We have these God-given desires that have to do with our relationship with God, not as our judge, but as our Father. And as our Father, the relationship can either be weakened or strengthened depending upon our faithfulness to in the analogy of John chapter 13, wash our dirty feet. The dust of defilement that gets upon our feet day by day needs to be acknowledged, confessed, and forgiveness needs to be sought. So that's why we do it. 
because of a different relationship, because we want to stay in close fellowship with our Heavenly Father. And that's what Jesus is saying here in verse 3, when he says, you are already clean, but here's the key that I want to get to. You are clean how? You are clean, as he tells us, because of the word which I have spoken unto you. What is that telling us? That's telling us of the power of God's word. Believers are created by the power of Christ's word. Isn't that what he says? You are already clean because of the word. The word has cleansed you. And when we take that back to John chapter 13, we we realize that that's talking about conversion, that's talking about the new birth, that's talking about regeneration, that's talking about the cleansed condition, the justified condition that all believers in the Lord Jesus Christ have. But what created that condition? And if you ask that question to the average Christian, you would probably get a lot of different answers. Well, it's because I believed. Well, that's that's true as far as it goes. Well, it's because Jesus died on the cross for me. Well, that's certainly true. <laughs> that's certainly true. But here Jesus points to a very important factor that is sometimes overlooked. This wonderful work of regeneration is accomplished by the Word of God, empowered, of course, by the Spirit of God. But it's the Word that quickens, the Word that gives life. God uses His Word to create His children. He breathes life into dead souls by causing his living word to live in that particular soul. The word of God is alive and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the dividing of soul of soul of, of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. The word of God is a living book. The Bible is unlike any other book. Now, I'm all in favor of examining the Bible in a literary sense. Not too many weeks ago, we had a wonderful fall Bible conference, one of the most helpful, amazing conferences that we've had. It was wonderful in many respects. But I one of the, one of the aspects of it, kind of an incidental thing that some people probably don't even remember, but was the, spe- the speaker talked about how important it is to understand the different and I'm not sure quite what word to use here, except genres that are found in Scripture. That's a literary term. The different types of writing that are found in the Bible. And he pointed out to us that an enormous portion of the Bible is poetry. He told us the exact um, or, or, or a general percentage that I don't remember now exactly what that was, but it was a large percentage. He told us that X percentage of, I think he said the Old Testament, is poetry. And he was doing that because on that particular message, he was taking us through the three chapters of the book of Habakkuk. It was a wonderful message. 
It was just, it was just, it just was an amazing message. I just really can't say enough about it, about how well the the, the book of Habakkuk was was analyzed and summarized and and uh, explained and applied in one sermon. It was really a masterful sermon in every way. But to interpret. To help us understand the book of Habakkuk, he had to point out that this is poetry. And I had already recognized that myself. Of course, I have actually talked through, taught through Habakkuk a long time ago. I'd have to go back in my records to, to figure out or to, to determine exactly how long ago that's been. But in, in choosing the passage to read in our service that night, knowing where his primary text in the book was, I... I decided to read the third chapter aloud to our congregation, believing, as we do, that part of our corporate worship is the reading of Scripture. What are we supposed to do when we come together in corporate worship? And how do we know what we're supposed to do? Many Christians, many many pastors, unfortunately, seem to have the idea, well, we do whatever seems best. We do whatever people want us to do so that they will want to come to church. We do whatever pragmatically accomplishes our desire to gather people together and to do something helpful, something spiritual, something religious with them while they're together. So we try to figure it out on that basis of what people want, and that's what we include in our church service as the elements of worship, or the, the things that we put in our order of worship. And, and let me say that if you claim you don't have an order of worship, I will beg to differ with you. You either have one that you planned, or you have one that, that you didn't plan, but it's still there. The, the, whatever you do in, in your service uh, constitutes your order of worship, the elements of worship. If you sing, that's an element of worship. If you pray, that's an element of worship. If you preach, that's an element of worship. Whatever you do, that's an element of worship in the order of worship. And and it seems to me from Scripture, clearly said in Scripture, one of the elements of our worship ought to be the reading of a portion of God's Word that ought to be included in every worship service. We read the Word of God. When we preach, we are presumably expounding the Word of God. And in most cases, that being the case, the portion that you read should probably include the portion that you're going to expound. Sometimes if you're going to expound a longer passage, you may read the whole thing that you're going to expound. In most cases, you're probably expounding a a smaller section, so you read a portion of Scripture that leads up to it and maybe even goes beyond it. In other words, you read the portion of Scripture that puts the text into its context, but you may not do that. You may have the practice, as some churches do, and I think it's a good practice, though we don't follow it, of having a prescribed portion to read on Every Sunday of the year, you have that all laid out for you for a whole year so that you read through certain sections of Scripture. In fact, if you did that 
over several years, you could probably, in the course of I don't know how many years, publicly read the entire Bible to your congregation over the course of, it would take quite a few years to do that. We've never followed that kind of a schedule, but we do make it a practice of always reading a portion of God's Word. And so in this case, I read Habakkuk chapter 3 because I know knew that he was going to be focusing upon those last three verses of the book of Habakkuk that is really, really significant. Um, I'm, I'm finding it now in my scripture as I'm talking to you, and I've um, here it is, Habakkuk 3, 17 through 19. It's a challenging passage. It's a wonderful passage. It says, and this concludes the book of Habakkuk, Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls. I'll stop there. That's verse 17. This is a description of economic disaster, economic scarcity. And some people don't, don't understand this at all because some people misteach that Christians should never be in scarcity, that God would never cause the fruit tree not to blossom for his people, the fruit not to be on the vine for his people, the labor of the olive to fail for his people, the yields, the fields to yield no food, no, no crops growing in the fields for his people, and so forth. Some teach that if you're a, a child of God, particularly one who is exercising faith, then you are going to have prosperity. That's God's will for you, and that will always be God's desire for you. But Habakkuk realized that that's not always the case. I read it again. Though the fig tree may not blossom, nor fruit be on the vines, though the labor of the olive may fail, and the fields yield no fruit, though the flock may be cut off from the fold, and there be no herd in the stalls, then this, yet I will rejoice in the Lord. I will joy in the God of my salvation. That is a powerful statement. It's similar, I think, to what you find in the book of Job. Job goes through all these trials where God takes away everything. He takes away the the wealth that he had that was all in his day produced by his flocks and herds and the things that you that that prosper in an agricultural setting that similar to what Habakkuk is, is describing here, he took away his family. All of his children were removed from him. He took away his health. The health and wealth gospelers of our day say that if you trust God, you'll always have good health. Tell that to Job. God took away his health, and it wasn't because of any disobedience or sin or lack of faith on Job's part. His faith is incredibly strong. When you see him going through all of these things and realize that he refuses to turn away from God, even though his wife told him to curse God and die, he refuses to fault God. 
he is saying the same thing that Habakkuk is saying. Even though God should take away every earthly blessing, I'll still trust him. I'll still worship him. I'll still love him. I'll still point others to him. How do you do that? Only by the regenerating power of the Holy Spirit using the Word of God to teach you to do that. People who don't know the Bible are easily misled and come up with many of these errors that I have already described. People who know the Word of God and know know the God of the Word are those who are strengthened by the Word of God. But what I started to say was, I'm all in favor of analyzing the Bible as a literary book. It, it, it is similar to other books in many ways, in that, as I've just described, portions of it are poetry. So you analyze those portions of it, recognizing the, I don't want to say the rules of poetry because there aren't exactly rules, but recognizing the the um, aspects of poetry. Poetry is different than prose. Poetry is different than narrative. Poetry is different than history. You, Poetry allows a lot of latitude for figures of speech and what we might call poetic language, which is not strictly literal, but it gets the point across in a non-literal way. It's a very powerful genre. And if you interpret and try to understand a portion of the Bible that is written as poetry, but you treat it as if it's no different from historical narrative, you won't understand what it's saying. You'll misunderstand it for sure. You really will. That's why a lot of people misunderstand many of the prophetic sections of the Bible, because so many of the prophetic sections are poetry, and even some get into, most, many of them get into the area of what is sometimes called apocalyptic literature, but we won't get into that little nuance at this time, but just poetry. But people try to interpret it in the most literal way possible and come up with a misunderstanding because they fail to recognize that it's poetry. And what's my point in all of this? My point is that the Bible can, yes, and must be analyzed in a way similar to other literature if you're going to make sense of it. But it is unlike any other book. The Bible has a great deal of history, but it's, it's unlike any other book of history. The Bible has a great deal of poetry, but it's unlike any other book of poetry. The Bible has, it's a unique book. It has a power, a spiritual power in its very words that no other book in all the world has, because no other book is the Word of God. The Bible is both the word of men that God used to pen his scriptures, to speak his word, but at the same time, it is the word of God. And therefore, it is alive. It is powerful. It is able to accomplish what no other book can accomplish. You can't, 
you can't analyze the Bible only as if it were a book of literature and understand its meaning or receive its benefit. And many people analyze it that way. They analyze the genre. They analyze the the language and so forth and so on. They do that. They analyze the culture and the context in which things were said. They can, they can analyze it very skillfully, very intellectual, intellectually, very educationally, are very skilled at that and still miss the benefit and the power of it because they fail to recognize its unique aspect. It is the Word of God. You are already clean because of the Word which I've spoken to you. Could you say that of any other book in all the world? No, absolutely not. And so we'll come back to this, Lord willing, next week. Until then, this is Greg Barkman, Bible teacher on the Beacon Broadcast, saying good day. May God give you his eternal peace. Amen.